and welcome to Never the Twins Shall Meet, a podcast hosted by twin sisters, separated by distance, but united by nerdiness. I'm your host, Lulu. And I'm your co-host, Pi. So it has actually been forever since we recorded, though you might not be aware of this as a listener, because our last episode we recorded shortly before Thanksgiving, and it is now shortly before Christmas as we're recording this. So it's been quite a while between episodes, and I just wanted to ask, is there anything that you've been into or up to in that time since that you want to tell our listeners about? Oh, so much. I have been extremely busy for the last month. First of all, I finished National Novel Writing Month at the end of November and successfully wrote 50,000 words of a book, which was extremely fun. Woohoo! Except then I was immediately plunged into my finals for my semester at college. So I was busy with papers and exams and projects for about two weeks. And the only book during that time that I managed to finish reading was For the Wolf by Hannah Witten, which was a pretty fun, spooky retelling of Little Red Riding Hood with a creepy forest. And I am thankfully done with my finals now and just chilling at home on winter break and recharging my very tired brain by reading a lot of books and watching a lot of TV and doing some fun writing. So I'm currently watching the TV shows The Wheel of Time and The Witcher, which are both like big epic fantasy TV shows based off of some pretty well-known books. And I'm having a lot of fun with those. I love fantasy shows with elves and monsters and heroes destined to save the world. So that's been a lot of fun. I've also read a lot of good books and I'll try to pick a couple to recommend and talk about. One is Being Seen by Elsa Sunison, which is the memoir of a deafblind woman. And it's very snarky and funny, but also really angry and kind of a scathing critique of the way our society treats disabled people and has a lot of interesting discussions of like media representations of deaf and blind people. So I found that like super interesting and definitely would recommend checking that out. Then I read The Death of Jane Lawrence by Caitlin Starling, which is a spooky gothic book about an accountant who enters a marriage of convenience with a handsome doctor, only to discover that he has a lot of secrets and his ancestral house may be haunted and may be trying to kill them both. It reminded me a lot of Crimson Peak, but was possibly even scarier. Then I read A Marvelous Light by Freya Marsh, which was a really delightful historical fantasy romance with a gay romance between a nice himbo and a grouchy librarian who are thrown together and have to solve a murder and a magical conspiracy. And that was a ton of fun and just like really sweet and cute. And finally, I read Master of Jin by P. Jelly Clark, which is a really fun alternate universe steampunk novel set in early 20th century Cairo. And it's a murder mystery starring a well-dressed lesbian detective. And it was just like very fun from start to finish. And that's what I've been up to. Wow, you've been really busy and also all of those books sound great and I think I need to read them immediately. But unfortunately, I am still embroiled in the end of my academic semester. Woohoo, let's hear it for some tired college juniors. (laughs) But it has been quite a while since we last recorded, so I have managed to squeeze in some non-academic reading in between all my busy stuff. And I recently read How Moon Fuentes Fell in Love with the Universe by Raquel Vasquez-Gilliland, which was a bit outside of what we've talked about on this podcast. It's sort of a contemporary coming-of-age novel with a little bit of magical realism thrown in about a teenage girl whose sister is a very famous social media influencer but she sort of lives in her sister's shadow as a photographer. And she gets invited along on this like big social media tour. 
um, and sort of starts to like come into her own. And there's a lot of exploration of like body image and purity culture and religion. Also a really good romance. It had a very authentic teenage voice. So I enjoyed that quite a bit. Also, I finished reading Archivist Wasp by Nicole Corner Stace, which I enjoyed a lot. It's this sort of fantasy dystopian mashup of a book about this young girl who lives in a very far future post-apocalyptic world. And she hunts ghosts to kind of study them and then destroy them. And they're kind of just these little like wisps of human souls that wander around until she captures them. But one day she finds this ghost that's like aware and sentient and can talk to her and makes a deal because it wants to find another ghost that it knew from its previous life. And it becomes this sort of like weird, interesting Orpheus and Eurydice style road trip through the underworld. I also really appreciated that it's a book about like very strong friendships as opposed to romance. Cause I feel like it's so hard to find books that aren't like full of romance all the time. So I enjoyed that a lot. It was very interesting. I also don't usually talk about things I read or watch for class on this podcast because they tend to be pretty unrelated to the kind of science fiction and fantasy media we usually focus on. But I have been taking a class on vampire cinema this semester. And I recently watched the 1987 movie, The Lost Boys, which was really fun. It's about a vampire motorcycle gang in 1980s California in this sort of seaside carnival town that is very obviously Santa Cruz with name changed. It was really fun. Uh, the vampires all had mullets. The soundtrack was extremely fun. I had a good time watching it. You know, just like break up that dreary winter night with like a lot of weird vampires. Good time. And also more recently, I just finished reading Hedge by Natalie Zena Walshots. Such a good book. It's essentially about a low level henchwoman for a supervillain who is badly injured by a superhero when this like ransom rescue mission goes wrong. And she takes it upon herself to sort of calculate the damage that superheroes cause to the world and prove that they're actually more bad than good. Really interesting exploration of collateral damage and descents into villainy and good versus evil. It's going to be one of the books we talk about on a future episode. So if that sounds really interesting to you, you should stay tuned because we both have a lot of thoughts on it. Oh, wow, that was a lot. <laughs> We've been busy. We've been very busy. However, now we are going to get to introduce what we're talking about this episode, and it's King Arthur time. Today, we're going to be talking about the book Legendborn by Tracy Dion, which is a modern day urban fantasy take on King Arthur starring a black teenage girl. And we both loved this book, so we're really excited to talk about it. The basic premise of Legendborn is that it's about Brie Matthews, a high schooler who recently lost her mom in a tragic accident. And while she's attending a program for high school students at UNC Chapel Hill, she sees a demon and then a group of teenagers killing a demon and then becomes involved in this ancient secret society of demon hunters who are descended from King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Like I said, I absolutely loved this book. I think it can be tough to write a story based off of something as old and well-known as King Arthur and make it feel fresh and new and exciting, but this one absolutely succeeded. It was just a fantastic read. I love some demon hunters and some cool mythology, and this one delivered both. Plus, it has a Black protagonist, and I don't think I've ever read another King Arthur retelling that's not all focused on white people, so that's a couple amazing things that the book has going for it. Yes, Legendborn is really good, and this is basically just going to be a Legendborn love episode. <laughs> Fair warning. I read it over Thanksgiving break, and then I basically spent the week back from break running around campus, shoving it in my friends' faces, being like, you should read Legendborn! You should read Legendborn! <laughs> so I'm here once more to push the Legendborn agenda. 
I thought it was really great. It has an amazing main character who goes through a really great arc of coming to terms with grief and trauma. It has some really great world building and also a really interesting exploration of history and mythology and the ways that they intertwine. However, there is kind of a lot of world building and terminology in this book. So I think I'm just gonna like lay it out so we have like a basis before we can get into like the discussion of characters and themes and plot and stuff. So the basic premise of Legendborn is that there is this secret society known as the Order, descended from King Arthur and 12 Knights of the Round Table. So like Lancelot, Tristan, Gawain, etc. And in each generation, there is a scion for each bloodline. And it means that these bloodlines, when activated, allow people to channel the power of their ancestors. So like, for instance, in this book, descendants from Sir Lamorak are like super, super strong or descendants from Sir Gawain have healing abilities, but there's only one such person born in each generation and like their powers aren't always activated. So they, they very carefully cultivate these bloodlines. And also these scions, in addition to like having cool powers, also have these squires who aren't descended from knights, but are sort of like magically bonded with them and can also sort of like channel these powers. So basically like two for the price of one. However, in the world of Legendborn, like kind of the more scions are activated, like the worse the world is because the, the order exists to fight off these shadow demons that kind of feed off of humans and the bloodlines activate in response to this. So like if all 13 of the bloodlines are activated, the world is in dire straits. And that, that's basically the gist of it. Secret side demon hunters with Arthurian heritage. In terms of the world building, it definitely reminded me a bit of The Moral Instruments by Cassandra Clare, because it has a slightly similar premise of this seemingly normal human girl discovering a secret world of demon hunters and magic, while also learning that she's not quite as normal as she once thought. But honestly, I would say that Legendborn blows Shadowhunters out of the water in terms of character work and world building and just like how much fun I had reading it. Yeah, I guess there's similarities. I think whenever I compare books on this podcast, I always want to make the caveat that I don't think like Legendborn is ripping off of Cassandra Clare's Mortal Instruments books or anything. It's more that it's just like that sort of an, a cultural touchstone. Like if you know what this thing is, this thing has similar vibes. But the thing is, I didn't actually like the Mortal Instruments Shadowhunters books that much. And I really liked Legendborn. So my recommendation is that, is that if you liked the Mortal Instruments, read Legendborn. If you didn't like the Mortal Instruments, you should really read Legendborn. That sounds like a fair enough recommendation. Basically, like, everyone read this book. It's good. There is a lot of world building in Legendborn. It's very much one of those fantasy books that has, like, a lot of important capital letter things, which is quite fun, but it means there's a lot to keep track of. And basically, it boils down to the Shadowborn, which are demons, sometimes emerge into our world, and the Legendborn, who are descendants of King Arthur and the Round Table, who can also channel their magic, secretly hunt these demons to keep regular humans, who are called Onceborn, safe, Brie gets involved in this world largely by accident, but then decides to stick around because she suspects that her mom's death may have been connected to the secret world of magic and demons, and she wants to try to figure out what exactly happened. Because like we said earlier, at the start of the book, she's recently lost her mom and is still kind of reeling from that sudden death in her family. And when she's at a party with some college students, she witnesses the members of the order has checked out a demon and then they wipe the memory of all the humans who witness it so they can keep the order a secret. But she sort of like manages to break through the memory magic manipulation and realizes that she experienced something kind of similar when a police officer came and reported about the death of her mother. And it's like, hmm, maybe there's something more to this than just a tragic car accident like I've been told. And she decides to kind of infiltrate the order to find out the truth about her mother's death and maybe get some revenge if it turns out the order is not as benevolent as they claim they are. 
I loved Brie. She's a really strong character and she's a total badass. There's also, she's allowed to be flawed and learn and grow and she feels a lot of real grief over her mom's death. I feel like a lot of times in especially YA fantasy books, the character's parents are killed off just to get them out of the way so they could like gallivant around saving the day, being the chosen one without having to worry about curfews or grades. But in this case, Brie's mom's death has a really big impact on the character and the narrative. She is dead before the book starts but you can like basically feel her as a character in the book because she has so much of an impact on Brie and like her death is something that drives Brie throughout the book she wants answers for like this seemingly meaningless tragedy she wants to understand what happened she wants to like hope that maybe joining the order and learning their secrets will somehow like make her understand what happened to her mom and I just thought it was a really well done explanation of grief and trauma it didn't feel like something that was just in the narrative to get rid of the parents at all I agree. I think it sometimes can be a bit of a trope in young adult books that are all about adventure and action to sort of kill off or incapacitate the parents because otherwise you probably wouldn't be gallivanting around trying to save the universe on your own at age 16. But in Legendborn, it really does feel like it's a large part of Bree's story is learning to cope with the trauma and grief from her mother's like really abrupt passing in a car crash. And like she even um, kind of possibly deals with being diagnosed with persistent flex bereavement disorder and like it affects her relationship with her father a lot and he's still in the book quite a lot so it's very much a story in which the mom is dead but it's not just like oh we killed the mom to get her out of the way it's like a very significant part of Bree's character and like kicks off the story on its own so I found that refreshing because it's a story that really grapples with the implications of abruptly losing a parent at a young age and then also being thrust with like this weird wild magical world and how like actually that probably would cause like a lot of distress for you. Also, another thing that I really liked about Brie is that she's just a very smart character because she puts together the pieces about the Order so fast and kind of immediately starts sucking out all their secrets and deciding that she needs to infiltrate them. And I feel like a lot of urban fantasy books where there's like, you know, kind of this magical world underneath the one that we're aware of, the characters have to go through this like big freak out period when they deny that magic can be real. And they're like, oh my God, this must be a prank. Someone's probably like filming me just to like be like, ha ha, I got you or like they think they're hallucinating. And like, that's realistic because obviously if you're raised thinking there's no magic, you wouldn't just immediately be like, oh cool, yeah, I guess like demons exist, chill, I'm gonna roll with that. But like as a reader, it can be a little frustrating to read because like, you know, picking up the book from the start that there's going to be magic in this book. So why are we wasting time being like, oh my God, what if the magic is real? But I, I feel like Legendborn did that in a really fun and interesting way where Brie is like, smart about it like she starts putting together pieces she's like something's not right here I'm gonna like deduce my way towards finding the secret headquarters of the magical society I'm gonna like convince this guy that I know to let me become his squire because when she's at the early college program she meets this guy named Nick who is sort of sort of supposed to just like keep an eye on her as a college student but it turns out that he's actually a member of the order and she's like hey can I, can I convince you to like let me train as your squire with like the secret intention of infiltrating the order to find out what happened to my mother's death. So I just really enjoyed that like once Brie finds out magic is real, she is on it. She rolls with it. She's like, not only is magic real, I like think that it caused my mom's death and I'm like not going to hold back and like freak out about it being real. I'm just gonna be like, I know what I need to do. And that was very refreshing for me. 
Yeah, absolutely agree. That can be one of the things that I find a little frustrating about urban fantasy books that characters often have to go through like this, oh my god, magic is real, I have to deal with this somehow, period. And like Bree does go through like that period where she's like, oh my god, demons are real, I am freaked out, I cannot believe like all, all this magic has been here under my nose the whole time. Once she kind of calms down and accepts it, she is like, she is ready to figure out the secrets of this order. She's like, you guys are telling me all this stuff, but I don't know if I trust you, I need to figure it out on my own I need to like I need to get proof I need to understand what's going on I really love that because she's, she's a very savvy smart protagonist and she has goals I love it when characters in fantasy books have like a really strong goal and a lot of autonomy and they're not just reacting to stuff that's happening because I feel like Brie could have easily been that kind of character in the beginning of the book she could have just been reacting to learning that magic is real and like reacting to learning that there's a secret demon hunting order on her college campus but instead she's like okay this is real like what can I do about this what what can this do for me like can I find out what happened to my mom through that and I really loved that it made her immediately feel like a strong and tangible protagonist instead of just someone who's kind of reacting to things that are happening around her right and I really liked the contrast that in many ways she is this character who is very lost and going through a really hard time and maybe not making the best decisions and is like not good at coping with grief and sort of pushing people away. But also at the same time, she sort of contains like multitudes and knows what she wants and is going to go after it. And in some ways this is kind of because she's having trouble processing the grief over her mother's death and like wants there to be a reason behind it. So I enjoyed the kind of contrast between her being this teenager who has lost her mother and doesn't really know how to deal with this like life altering unending grief, but also being this character who is very forthright and is like, you know what, like if it takes me infiltrating a secret demon hunting society to find out the truth about my mom's death, like I'm going to start training, give me that sword. So I just enjoyed that like she's this character who is allowed to both be emotionally vulnerable and struggling, but also is someone who like very much pushes the plot forward and like doesn't take other people's crap and like knows what she wants. I very much enjoyed like seeing her as a character with like these two different sides of her. Like she really struggles, but also she's someone who kind of knows what she wants. Also, we're not going to get into spoiler territory quite yet, but the ending of Legendborn is just so iconic. Like Brie did that. She really did that. It's so good. Yeah, I think I think we're going to hold off discussing spoilers a little bit longer. But yes, it wasn't very much. She did that exclamation point ending. <laughs> So another thing that I really liked about this book is that it does a great job of exploring how like a rigid, unchanging secret society who is super obsessed with being descended from a bunch of like dead white guys would also be prejudiced and elitist as hell because a lot of people in the order are racist and sexist towards Brie as well as distrusting her because she's a normal human being but she's also a black girl and these people who are super obsessed with their bloodlines and being descended from like English kings and who are like really rich like obviously these people are going to be racist and I really appreciated that the institution of the order in this book is so thoroughly critiqued because I feel like it's kind of rare in fantasy books for them to do that for example in the Mortal Instruments books so it's just like the clay doesn't believe us about this threat so we're just gonna have to go hunt the demons on our own for drama purposes and in Legendborn it's very much like I'm a black girl and I have to keep enduring microaggressions and racism from these rich elite white people not just because I wasn't raised in the order but because of like who I am as a person besides that and I think Tracy Dion did a really good job with that aspect. Brie also kind of learns to band together and get some solidarity from other marginalized members of the order, such as Greer, who is non-binary, or Sarah, who is Latina. And basically, I just thought that Tracy Dion's exploration of the way that 
the Legendborn Society obviously would be prejudiced was done really well because I feel like that's not something that other fantasy books about King Arthur deal with but like yeah obviously if your society is like super proud of their bloodlines being descended from King Arthur they are going to be like racist rich people who like have like this elitist club of like who belongs and who doesn't and so like it's kind of an obvious thing if you think about it but I don't think I read any other King Arthur retellings or secret society retellings in general that kind of deal with that idea. Yeah it's a very large part of the book the fact that Brie is an outsider in the order not just because she wasn't raised with the knowledge of magic but because the order is kind of run by this elite society of rich white people and she's very much an outsider. I also think there's kind of this interesting contrast between that she talks about in the book but between the order being obsessed with these bloodlines that literally stretch back to medieval times and like are supposedly kept track of like infinitely carefully so they know exactly who the scions and the heirs are and stuff versus African-American Brie, who doesn't have this kind of familiar history to draw on that she thinks at the start. And it's like, well, maybe my family can trace back a couple of generations to like the Emancipation Proclamation, but I don't have this like incredibly long history to draw on. And the fact that you are all like really obsessed with your bloodline and legacy makes me feel really alienated. I just think it was like a really smart idea to take an institution like a secret magical hunting society who kind of sees themselves as like everyone's saviors and critique like, well, maybe they wouldn't be that great. Like if you're raised to think that you're descended from this figure who's kind of like the embodiment of like when Britain was super great and also you're supposed to save everyone, like you probably would have a lot of problems. And especially if like you're a very secret society who like relies on these elite wealthy people to keep your secret. It's just very, very, very well done. And I really enjoyed that part. Maybe not like enjoyed is a, is a good word because the definitely Brie faces like microaggressions to like outright racism. So it's not something I enjoy, but I was like, I'm really glad that someone is writing this because I think this is like a good thing to interrogate in fantasy. Like what does it mean to uphold these like white European ideals of heroism and being a knight and being a king and having these like inherited magical legacies? What does that mean when this is a story that takes place in the American South and the main character is a black girl and doesn't come from that kind of legacy and it's like you people are alienating to me not just because you understand magic but because you're all powerful and white and like the kind of history that you have is not the kind of history that I have. So it was just it was a very good part of this book. Yeah, there's this one particular moment like fairly early on in the book where Brie is confronted with like this wall of names of like all people who've served at the order going back generations and generations and she just kind of looks at it and she's like you guys know where you came from but like the world and like the history of American racism has like made sure that I don't have this kind of history and it's like a really powerful reminder that like fantasy books can be really obsessed with like bloodlines and like your famous ancestors and stuff but like not everyone in our world has the luxury of like knowing their entire family lineage all the way back to King Arthur and I just really liked that that was something this book got to explore because like I said it's like when it's obvious when you think about it that like not everyone knows like all the way back to King Arthur who their family is but that doesn't always come up in fantasy books because like the idea of being the chosen one descended from your famous ancestor is like such a popular idea in fantasy books but it's not one that like everyone in our world will have experienced. Also, on more sort of a more general note, I thought the explanation for why the order is secret was done really well in this book, because in so many urban fantasy books, which is sort of like this genre where there's magic kind of set in like a world that is recognizably ours, but with like some supernatural element. Anyway, so in a lot of urban fantasy books where a magical world exists beneath our own, 
that's kept a secret. It can be like really hard to find a good reason to justify why people just aren't public about the existence of magic. You're like, why, why are you going through all this effort of keeping magic secret? Like, this seems like a pain. Why not just be like, oh yeah, we were like publicly fight demons and we're heroes and that's great. And like, we don't have to go around mind webbing people to keep our secret. But I think Legendborn comes up with a really good explanation of why the Order and the Legendborn and the Shadowborn are secret, which is that the Shadowborn demons feed on fear and negative emotions. So the Order has to keep their existence like as hush-hush as possible because otherwise there'd be this widespread panic and people would be afraid all the time and that would just fuel the power of the demons. I found that very convincing because as much as I do love the idea of secret magical societies, because it's very fun to be like, ooh, what could be hiding under the surface of our seemingly mundane world? Sometimes you read them and you're like, this isn't a good reason. Like, just tell people that you're an elf or something. But I think in Legendborn, the way that it ties into not just the overall world, sort of like the stakes that like we have to this a secret or the bad guys will continue to grow in power i was like this is a very solid explanation and i appreciate that yeah agreed i have definitely read urban fantasy books where i'm like okay there's there's no reason you have to keep this a secret you could just tell people that magic is real but this one has a very convincing explanation because if they tell everyone that demons are real it'll just make the demons more powerful so they have to keep it a secret and that's a really good and convincing way of going around like why doesn't anyone know about magic in this world so i like that a lot I also thought the fact that the Order's cover story is basically that they're a secret college society is also kind of clever because three points this out like in the book, a lot of attitudes towards secret societies at colleges is just this agreement to pretend they don't exist. Like you might know that Yale has secret societies, but like, shh, you're not gonna talk about it. So the Order's cover story is that they are a secret society at UNC Chapel Hill. And they have this like early college program where teenagers can like, enroll at UNC and maybe become involved in the order but like they just hush hush like we don't train demons we just have like some galas and like some like hangouts in our fancy cool like frat house and basically they're they're like a demon hunting society disguised as a frat house it's really clever because as Bree points out there are like a lot of old money clubs and secret societies and they often commonly have tight-knit groups and like loyalty and established networks and a lot of resources so the legendborn order fits in perfectly like on the surface they just look like another secret society and like you don't even have to look closer because everyone's just like oh yeah that's that's just the secret society they like to be secret and there's not much else going on with them so no one bothers to look closer and realize they're actually a bunch of secret demon hunters with magic yeah, and especially Brie points out that in the South, it's really common for these to be these sort of like old boys clubs that have like tight knit groups and like really established networks and resources and like this really intense loyalty. So on the surface, the Order and the Legendborn just kind of seem like another one of those without the supernatural involvement. And they just sort of they blend in in plain sight, which I thought was very clever because it very much makes use of the specific setting of a college in the South to integrate like the secret demon hunting society. I would say that the setup order does take like a little bit to wrap your head around because there's all these different terms and roles within it, like vassals and pages and scions and squires and king's mages and regents. But I promise like once you do wrap your head around it, it all starts to make sense. It's just like, it's a very large order with a lot of different roles. So the way that it kind of works is, like I said, there's scions and squires who like actively fight the demons, but there's also people called vassals who aren't descended from Arthurian characters and they just sort of serve the 13 legendborn bloodlines through like accumulating money and power and like doing networking and some of them are CEOs and stuff and a lot of them are just sort of involved in the regular mundane world covering up 
the like secret identity of the legendborn and providing resources, which I thought was sort of clever because you're like, oh yeah, you probably would need people whose jobs just to like get you money and hide your existence. Yeah, it's definitely, there's a lot of world building, but luckily it's explained pretty well. And there's also a bunch of like handy diagrams in the back being like, and this is this guy on and like the person who does this job is called that. And it's very useful for when I forgot what was going on. I think more fantasy books should just have like a neat little section in the back that lays out all of their world buildings. It's very useful when I forget what's going on. Also, the term for sort of non-magical people is once born because unlike the legend born, they sort of don't have this magical reincarnation magic in their family heritage. Anyway, yeah. So there's, there's sort of a lot of terms to wrap your head around, but like once I got a hang of it, I was like, okay, cool. Like I'm on board. I get it now. So aside from Brie, I also loved the other characters in this book. There's like kind of two other major players in this book who are Nick and Cell. And Nick is the scion of King Arthur and he's kind of waiting to be called by him and take up his place as a leader in the Legendborn Society. But he doesn't really want to be called because there's like a lot of pressure on him because of his duties. And if he is called, that means their world is basically in dire strait and about to be eaten by demons. And then there's also Cell, who is a descendant of the original Merlin and is kind of a dark and broody wizard who distrusts Bree a lot at first, but kind of gets like some more development later on. And I found them both very compelling and interesting characters. Yeah, I thought they were good foils to Brie and also interesting characters that you see more of, both as she sort of becomes more aware of their place in Legendborn society, but also as she gets to know them better. I think Nick is a good example of the way that kind of a Captain America-esque good guy character doesn't have to be boring and bland because he's a genuinely good person, but he also has a complex and interesting character arc and there's a lot of issues about his destiny and how everyone knows that he's like destined to become the scion of King Arthur and how that's affected his life which I found really interesting because like he is the chosen one but the chosen one kind of sucks sometimes and it's like affected his entire life and who he is. Right because he's the heir of King Arthur so he's supposed to be sort of the most powerful person in his generation And his father is the head of the order, so he has all this like prestige and privilege, but he literally just wants out from this life and has been denying his legacy at the start of the book. Because being a member of the order is really high risk. There's this like one thing that comes up partway through the book that I was like, oh dang, which is that once your powers are activated, your lifespan is essentially cut in half because of the toll the power takes on you. But if you don't accept these powers and you deny them, you can't fight the demons and keep the world safe. So there's this like, impossible terrible choice between giving up your life bit by bit in the name of the greater good or sort of just like living a fuller life but letting people around you die and also there's this whole thing where like you often lose loved ones or if people sort of don't comply with the order they like use memory magic on them and Nick has been very aware of this since he was a young child so even though he holds this really high up place and should be sort of like the golden boy of the order and like the best legend born there is he really hates it and is like I don't want to be a part of this anymore and I think that added some really interesting depth to his character because he's not just like the cool jock guy who's like supposed to save everyone he also is just like I yeah I don't really want to be the chosen one actually this kind of sucks yeah because when we first meet Nick it's kind of unclear why exactly he's denying being a scion of Arthur and why he doesn't want to be a leader but as you learn more about the order and you learn that basically Nick has been raised as a child soldier who knows that someday he will like be given this immense power which will then kill him you're like oh my god no wonder he wants like totally out of this life so it's a really interesting character arc of acknowledging that like being the chosen one gives you a lot of power 
but your personal life also takes a huge toll and like you might die just because like just because you're meant to hunt demons doesn't mean you're going to like have a long good life so I found Nick to be an interesting character. He also has a really nice romance with Bree that I thought developed super organically and I just enjoyed it a lot. Like it was just, sometimes I read books and the romance just doesn't hit, but I really enjoyed all of their scenes. Yeah, I enjoyed the romance as well. I especially liked that he always really respects Bree and always makes it clear that they're equals, even if she's training to be a squire. And also I thought they had a lot of like very realistic teen moments between them because Bree tells him about her plan to infiltrate the order and find out the truth about her mother's death. And Nick is like, fine, like, but we have to do this my way because I'm the one who knows what to do. And Bree's like, okay, what's your way? And he's like, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure. Give me a minute. <laughs> that was just funny. I feel like oftentimes, you know, characters don't always read like teenagers because they're in these such unrealistic, the pressure to save the world is on your shoulders and you've like raised to be a cool sword guy who's like King Arthur's heir. Like you could be an unrealistic teen in that sort of circumstance, but I'd like that oftentimes in Legendborn, there were moments that felt very authentically like there were teenagers, whether that was just like struggling with like the loss of parent or also just like being kind of dumb and not knowing what you were doing. <laughs> so the third of like the most important characters in the book is Cell who is a Merlin, like descended from the original Merlin, he does magic, and he is specifically tied to Nick and has like vowed to protect him as a scion of Arthur. He's the king's maid, which is like the highest magical position that you can have in Legendborn. He's basically a magical prodigy, and it's kind of hilarious because he and Nick hate each other due to some stuff in their past. Like they cannot stand each other, but they're also basically magically vowed to protect each other forever. And it's a really entertaining dynamic because I've definitely read a lot of books where there's like the chosen one and then like the chosen one's bodyguard, but I haven't read a book where they just like hate each other's guts and don't want to be around each other. So in this book, Merlin is the name of a position after the original King's Mage, not just one person, like how Arthur is one person in this book, but not a position. It's a little confusing. Cell is the most powerful young magic user of his generation. He also really doesn't like Bree at the start of the book because the fact that she's kind of immune to his memory magic and seems like suspiciously on the ball about all this magic stuff for someone who just learned about it makes him think that she's a demon who's taking human form to infiltrate the order. But that becomes sort of like a funny accusation when you learn his deal, because uh, the thing about Cell is that he is in fact descended from a demon. And I really want to talk about this because this book included one of my favorite extremely weird pieces of Arthurian lore. Yes, we are absolutely going to talk about the demon thing because I have never read another King Arthur book that included it. And it's just like one of my favorite pieces of Arthurian mythology. Okay, so basically when I was a junior in high school, I went through like a King Arthur phase, which I might talk about a little bit more later in this episode. But one of the weirdest things that I learned in this like deep dive into Arthurian lore for a couple of months is that in some versions of Arthurian myth, Merlin was supposed to be the Antichrist. Because some demons got together and were like, man, we should like really create the anti-Jesus because it's not really cool that Christians have like their cool guy and we don't have like our cool guy to go put on earth and like cause chaos. So one of the demons goes down to earth and gets this Welsh princess pregnant and the resulting baby is Merlin. Except obviously Merlin didn't turn out to be the Antichrist because he got baptized and voila, he wasn't a demon anymore. So he just became this like powerful wizard guy who then went off to be King Arthur's like right hand man. And that seems like kind of a really obvious loophole demons probably should have anticipated because like 
lots of people got baptized back then, but I guess they didn't ask me on what their plan was. Anyway, so I think that this is like a really bizarre piece of folklore that I really think is really like underrated or not underrated, but like underused in Arthurian mythology. And I think it's really interesting because it's an example of sort of the interplay between like pagan mythology and Christian mythos. And I don't know, I have a lot of thoughts on why I think it's really interesting, but they do in fact use this piece of Lord Legendborn, which made me very happy because I have never encountered a King Arthur that like does that. So through Merlin, Cell is descended from an actual demon and he has demonic heritage that despite this being like many, 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 many generations ago, it's described as kind of like Punnett square breaking where no matter how distant your demonic heritage is, it will still have like a really important impact on you which sort of becomes like a pot calling the kettle black thing. Like, Cell, you're a demon. Like, maybe don't be like all accusing people of being demons because you don't really have like any protection there. Stones and glass houses and all that. Anyway, so I was delighted when I learned that the resident terrible wizard man of Legendborn was a Merlin descended from a demon because I've never encountered that in a King Arthur adaptation before. And it fit really well with this demon-centered Arthurian lore. So I liked that quite a lot. And I appreciated Tracy Dion like taking this piece of lore and making it fit in her reimagination of Arthur, it was great. The thing about Cell is that he is kind of an asshole towards Brie for a lot of the book because he genuinely thinks that she is a demon in disguise who wants to infiltrate the legend war society and take it down from the inside and no amount of Brie being like I am not a demon can you please stop following me around everywhere and like trying to murder me and stuff like no amount of that convinces him otherwise for a significant chunk of the book and as a result of this I was absolutely determined not to like Cell as a character because he is so mean to Brie in like the first half of this book even though I I do love a teenage magical prodigy with a dark past and like weird heritage. I was like, I am not going to like him. He is an asshole. He is being mean to the main character. But uh, unfortunately, Tracy Dion is an actual genius with character work and she did like really good development with Cell and his character arc and like slowly revealing his backstory over the course of the book that I do actually care about him now. So like, congrats Tracy Dion. You made me care about a character I was firmly determined not to care about even though I do love like a good broody wizard character. I do agree that she did some good work with him in the second half of this book because he he's a bit of your typical like broody dark haired young adult fantasy guy at, at parts and he's kind of a jerk to Brie at the start because he's like I think it's kind of suspicious that this supposedly human girl uh, is immune to my really powerful memory magic and suddenly wants to train as a squire and like is really into becoming like part of our secret order of demon hunters. She's probably a demon but like he just comes off as being a jerk to her because you know that she's not a demon. But you learn that there's sort of this interesting position that he's stuck in where he's magically bound to the order and he has been since he was a very, very, very young child and he always has to do what they say. Otherwise they'll cast him out and his demon blood will sort of like cause him to self-destruct. And also he's stuck in this magical bond with Nick where he has to defend Nick and like cannot do anything to raise a hand against Nick. Like if Nick decided to kill him, you just have to stand there and take it. And I feel like an interesting theme that starts running throughout this book is that even for people who are accepted in the order and have positions of power like Nick or Cell, it can still be really miserable because you're essentially being trained as a child soldier in an unending war. So Cell's character is like, well, he is a jerk, but also he maybe has a point that like the order kind of sucks and he's in a terrible position and he's like, did not consent to join the order and be like magically bound as their mage forever, but also the alternative is kind of worse. That's the thing. So I think it did the... some interesting work with both Nick and Cell in the second half of the book. 
Yeah, that's the thing about the backstory that Tracy Dion comes up with for Cell, is that at first you're like, why is this guy so mean? He has like one of the highest positions in the entire order, but he like seems to hate everyone. And the more you learn, the more you realize he's kind of basically bound to this order, whether he wants to or not. And he has to do what they say, otherwise his demonic heritage will destroy him. And he really hates that he's magically bound to Nick because he has to obey his orders and he can't go against him. So you realize that he is this very powerful character but he's also been stuck in this position where he has to obey people no matter what and he's been stuck in this position for a very young age because as a kid his mother who was the last king's mage died so he's been the king's mage for like way longer than most people were at this point in his life and he's just really tired of like being stuck in this position where he has a lot of power but not enough to actually like make decisions about his own life and it's just like this really interesting exploration of why these characters like Nick and Cell in the Order have a lot of power but not enough to actually do what they want with their lives. Actually you know who he kind of reminded me of? Yeah? Mogget from Say Real. (laughs) (laughs) Oh god you're not wrong. Mogget and Cell will probably get along great. And part of it is that he's a very powerful bound demonic entity who has to start to follow people's orders but the other part is that because he's part demon he has yellow eyes and also he has this habit of like jumping off of very high things and landing on his feet for dramatic effects so I was just like this man is just a cat in human form isn't he <laughs> he is just a cat or actually I say man but he's like a teenager <laughs> they're all teenagers yeah he's like 18 so basically Nick and Cell are both students at like the early college program at UNC and as the book progresses you kind of learn more about how They've both spent their whole lives training to be part of the order, but they both kind of hate it for different reasons. And like through this, as well as the order's treatment of Bree, you kind of start to realize this whole organization might have like a really important mission, but they're also really rigid and unyielding. And they kind of like are this endless factory producing like child soldiers that they will send to their deaths. And it's, it's really dark, but also really compelling. Also, I have to say, I low-key feel like Tracy Dion was setting up, like, Bree slash Cell slash Nick as, like, a thing in the sequels, because she left just enough crumbs that I feel like it might happen, because obviously Bree and Nick fall in love over the course of the book and start dating, but... Brie is also kind of drawn to Cell and like they develop kind of this like uneasy alliance slash friendship once he stops being convinced he's a demon and then like there's a little bit of history between Cell and Nick so I was just like Tracy is this going to be like a poly romance like what are we doing here I would be down for it if I was but I'm really curious to see where it will go in the sequels okay I feel like we've talked a lot about vaguely spoilery things but now can we talk about like really spoilery things Because I just want to say, Tracy Dion, if this series does not end in polyamory, I will eat my copy of Legendborn. It's a big book, so that's not an idle threat. Okay, because basically one thing we learn is that there's a lot of LGBTQ representation in this book, which I thought was great. Like we said, there's like a non-binary character who's part of the order, and Bree's best friend from home is lesbian, and there's like various other gay and lesbian and bi characters that you encounter in the order. But also one thing we learned is that Cell is bisexual and he was in love with Nick when he was younger and they had this very tense, complicated relationship. So it would not have been like a healthy relationship even if Nick reciprocated. But I'm like, hmm, so there is some history there. Very interesting, very interesting. And I just feel like perhaps it would be interesting because I don't know, there is this whole like big epic tragic love triangle at the heart of Arthuriana with Lancelot, Guinevere and Arthur. And I know the whole thing is that like the fact that Lancelot was having an affair with Arthur's wife means that Arthur was 
being like emasculated and that's why it's really bad but we don't exist in like medieval England anymore so I think they should just end all love triangles and polyamory in the series and that's my take sometimes I dislike love triangles but I did find Cell and Nick both compelling and interesting characters and so like I would be okay if there was some kind of ending where Brie dated like one or both of them and like even if it's it is just played as a straight love triangle and she ends up picking one of them I would also be okay with that because there I feel like there are so few fantasy books where a black female lead gets to have a love triangle with two hot magic guys so like whatever Tracy Dion does with this romance in the sequel I will be down for it but I do feel like there was just enough setup for me to be like is this going to be like a poly relationship is this going to be like a more modern take on the tragic Arthurian love triangle and I'm, I'm desperately curious to know where this will go in the sequels like there's this one part at the very end of the book where Cell calls Brie Cariad and she doesn't know what that means because she doesn't speak Welsh but I know exactly one word of Welsh and it is that word so I know that it means love and I was like hmm so you just like you just call Brie love is this perhaps romantic maybe a little bit I think I, I agree with you that I would be okay if it was not actually resolving with them all dating each other but I think there would be some interesting character growth for that to happen and I would like to see it happen because I think it would be an interesting way to sort of put a spin on this very popular paranormal urban fantasy trope where like there's the girl torn between like the good guy and the bad guy sort of trope because I feel like that's very much a thing in love triangles in like young adult books. And what I did like about Legendborn is that it takes a lot of these very typical urban fantasy tropes and puts like a new spin on them by letting a black girl be the star of them and sort of like engage what it would mean for her identity and how that would shape the story. But also he just gets to like go on adventures and have like a hot guy love interest. So I think even if it is just sort of like a love triangle, I think Tracy Dion would put like her own good spin on it. But I think it would be very interesting to see this relationship evolve into sort of them all dating each other in like future books. Not in this book because they all have like terrible issues with each other by the end. I don't think it would work out that well. But I think if there's some interesting character growth that happens in future installments, I could sort of see all the characters kind of coming to this conclusion where they all date each other. So I'm just like, if this happens, I want to say that I called it. Yeah, hopefully in like three years, we could look back on this episode and be like, haha, we called it. But who knows? Because the sequel isn't out yet. But as it is, I think all three of these characters would have to go through a lot of growth in order to be in a healthy enough place for a relationship with each other, especially Nick and Cell, because my god, the amount of baggage in that relationship, it's like, it's not carry on. It takes like an entire car to fill it up. But, you know, I feel like it, I could see it happen. Also, just on the topic of these characters needing to go to therapy, which is deeply true, can we discuss how at one point Cell does unironically utter the sentence, no one needs therapy more than me, and also canonically has seen Twilight? Because I think that's a really funny way at poking fun of the like, broody, dark-haired male love interest in a young adult book kind of trope because he's sort of self-aware. Yeah, that was really funny because I was like, you know what? You're right, Cell. You do need therapy, but I'm very glad you like owned up to that fact. That was a kind of delightful part of the book. So this is a King Arthur episode, so I feel like we should talk more in depth about the King Arthur stuff because I really liked it. I really love the idea of all of these people being descendants of the original King Arthur and that these scions are able to channel the power of their ancestors under 
the right circumstances because I think it's a very fun way of adapting this mythos for the modern day because like King Arthur isn't alive in this book like he and the Knights of the Round Table died hundreds and hundreds of years ago but through their descendants and their ability to like channel their powers as science they kind of live on which is a fun way of like having the mythology still be relevant in the modern day time and this book does interrogate how messed up it is to basically raise their children as soldiers to channel magic in an endless war against demons but it's just like a really interesting mythology and I liked that a lot. I also feel like Tracy Dion you can tell how much thought and detail that she put into creating the legendborn society and how it functions it feels like every aspect of the society has been really well thought out like where do they get the money like why do they keep themselves secret how do they keep themselves secret like what do they do in their day-to-day lives like it all feels really thought out and I thought that was really well done. It's very clearly based off of King Arthur, but it still feels like a super unique and interesting urban fantasy world. So like I said earlier, I was really into King Arthur for a period when I was in high school, but I was I was less into the actual myths and retellings in movies and more so into the history that inspired them and kind of how the myth of King Arthur has evolved throughout history and been used by different people, often for political agendas. So I really loved reading a book about Arthurian myths that is very much about mythology being intertwined with real world history because the two are like really not as separate as you can think. Like I am a college student who enjoys taking classes on mythology and I have many thoughts on like the way mythology and real history are intertwined. So we've never done like an episode on Arthurian legends before. So I'm very excited that I get to geek out about this because I think it's really interesting because there's so much evolution of the Arthurian myth from like maybe this possible historical figure from post-Rome Britain who then grew into like this mythological magical figure and like the way it's been evolved and used and adapted is like really really interesting to me maybe even less so than the actual myths is how interesting to me they've changed and what stay the same and what has been changed like you know the French getting a hold of Arthurian myths and be like, like here's Lancelot we're inserting him into the story now so it's just like very obviously it's something that's been shaped so much by different cultures and different time periods so I really like that Legendborn sort of the, like just the most recent in this really long line of reshaping Arthurian mythology and looking at it through different lenses because like it's just I'm such a huge nerd for this kind of stuff like <laughs> I don't know, one anecdote that I put down in our note document just to like explain how clearly I really like the idea of Arthurian history and mythology is that when I say I was really into King Arthur in high school, I literally mean that I have vivid memories of reading a book on the historical foundations of Arthurian legend and the archaeological excavations that support them. Before I was supposed to go take pictures for junior prom, I was just like sitting on my bed before I changed into my prom dress, like reading a book on archaeology because I just find it really, really interesting. So I really enjoy that now there's like this awesome young adult fantasy book inspired by King Arthur, but it's not just like, whoa, King Arthur is super cool. What if you had a magical sword and they were knights? It's more like, wow, like let's examine what it really means for this story in the context of a 21st century American Southern setting. that's like still grappling with a history of racism and slavery. And like, what does it mean for this story about power and legacy to be told through the lens of a black girl as the protagonist? It's just, it's such a good way of continuing the Arthurian mythology. I love it. Yes, exactly. I feel like there's kind of this 
obsession, especially in Hollywood recently, I feel like, of going back to the roots of King Arthur and being like, well, what was King Arthur really like back then? Like, surely, like, if there wasn't magic, then, like, was it just people fighting Rome? And, like, if it was magic, let's go back to the very original stories. But I think it's much more interesting to talk about the way that the myth has evolved and, like you said, how it would evolve and work in, like, a modern-day urban fantasy setting. And I think that's my favorite part of this book because it feels so unique because, like, it is unique. And Tracy Dion has come up with this entire world of demon hunters and magic and secret societies that's inspired by King Arthur. And you can really obviously see the roots. You can also see the ways that she's changed and adapted it for modern times and to have a Black protagonist. And I think that's why I like this book so much because it has these really old roots, but it also adapts it for a modern day story. And yes, I do remember you sitting on your bed reading a book on the historical origins of King Arthur right before we went to prom. So. Listen, sometimes I'm just a parody of myself and I can't help it. <laughs> Fair enough. I think in order to properly talk about the, the representation of King Arthur in this book, we're going to have to go into some spoiler territory about the ending. Okay, so, 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 the ending. The plot twist where Brie was actually the scion of King Arthur and not Nick. Let's talk about that. Hi yelled when I got to that section. It was such a good plot twist. I feel like in hindsight, I should have seen it coming because Brie is the main character and not Nick, but it was set up and executed so well that like, I can't even be mad that I didn't see it coming. I just want to reread this book and see all the foreshadowing the second time around. It's just, it's such a well-executed plot twist because you're reading and you're reading and you get there and you're like, oh my God, I didn't see that coming. And then your next plot is, oh my God, I should have seen that coming because the setup is all there. Well, I I did kind of see it coming just because I read this book a while after you did like a couple of months and I had seen everyone screaming at the ending so I was like hmm, what's the biggest plot twist that could possibly happen oh what if Brie is the sign of King Arthur and not Nick and I just like threw that out there and then I was right so I did sort of predict it but that didn't make it any less of like oh wow oh wow this is going to change the course of this series a lot moment because for the whole book nick is under the impression that he is the scion of king arthur and he's resisting the urge to be called and take his place as a leader because he doesn't want to herald the beginning of this huge war with the demons which is what him becoming the sign of king arthur will mean but at the end of the book we learn that Bree is actually the scion and not nick and like he's descended from lancelot yeah okay so this book is very much a book that deals with the horrors of American slavery and like the generational trauma and lingering effects of it in the 21st century. So this is not necessarily a lighthearted book. And Bree's backstory does really engage with a lot of the worst aspects of American slavery because the basic plot twist in Legendborn relies on the fact that several generations ago, the scion for Arthur, who was a white plantation owner, raped an enslaved woman on his plantation, and their child ends up being Bree's like great, 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 great grandmother several times. I don't remember the exact number. And at the same time, his wife was having an affair with the scion of Lancelot, and Bree's ancestor escaped pregnant, and the affair was never revealed, and she had her child and raised this child away from her father. And also sort of due to like, trying to put this magical protection on her child, there's been this generational curse in Bree's family for a really long time that the mother will always die when her daughter is really young, which is why Bree lost her mother when she was 16, her mother lost her mother when she was really young and so on and so forth, like generations upon generations back to when this curse started. And basically everyone has believed that Nick is the scion of Arthur and Bree is just this like once born mundane girl who somehow is like, 
really good at avoiding magic that they put on her and is like infiltrating their order. But in actuality, Nick is the sign of Lancelot and Brie is the sign of Arthur. So it's like, it's a very intense backstory that really looks at some of like the worst parts of American history. But I think that's kind of like a necessary thing to do when you're telling a story about King Arthur, which is all about who gets to be powerful, who gets to be exalted, who gets to have legacy. Like, what does it mean for there to be like this white male figure that's sort of held up as like the one true king? And what does it mean for people who like aren't part of that group? So it's it's definitely not like a lighthearted backstory, but I think it's dealt with well in this book and is something that like is really at the heart of this book is like, what do you do with generations of trauma and like, how do you grapple with history and legacy? And Bree's backstory like really encapsulates all of that. Yeah, I couldn't have phrased that better myself. And I think the most important thing about this backstory is that throughout the book, the Order has kind of seen Brie as this person who comes from nothing. She's just like a regular human being. She doesn't know her past. Her family history is just regular people. But at the end of the book, they realize that Brie is not actually just another person. She's like the most important person in their entire society. And it's just kind of like it throws it back in their face, like the idea that this Black girl could be nothing. She's actually someone. She's the someone. And that's why it's such a powerful moment, because like, Everyone just kind of takes in stride, like, yes, of course, Nick is the scion of Arthur. He's like this golden-haired, strong guy who can use a sword, and Bree is no one. But Bree actually is, like, the most important person and the most powerful person in their society. And it happened because of this horrible backstory of slavery, but it still leads to this moment of, like, Brie actually does have a history and she is like an important person with a past and like her ancestors she's able to communicate with them during this reveal there's kind of like this long flashback explaining the history of her family through her matrilineal line and she's able to kind of communicate with her ancestors and understand like I do come from someone and I'm like part of this long line of women who have all tried to protect their daughters and keep them safe and it's just like a really powerful moment because it's the idea that like your family history literally is magic. Yes it's just such a good moment when she not only harnesses the power of King Arthur that she suddenly realized is actually hers and not Nick's but also when she manages to talk to like her grandmother and her great-grandmother and her great-great-grandmother like all back through the generations and sort of gain all this like communal knowledge and power from them. And the fact that like she has this legacy that is no less important than the Arthurian one. In fact, like in some ways it's more important to her and her family. And that also ties into something that I really liked about this book, which that the idea that is set up throughout, which is that the legendborn society isn't the only kind of magic in this world. And I really enjoy that this book does that because Brie learns from this mentor on campus who is a black woman who's supposed to be her therapist but then sort of turns out to be this like magical person who like wants to talk to her about the existence of the supernatural and she learns about the existence of rootcraft which is a type of magic practiced by black women including her ancestors and it's based off of like real life sort of beliefs and folklore in the african-american community and brie learns that her mother's family has practiced rootcraft but like because her mother died when she was really young they didn't pass on this knowledge she wasn't aware of it so at the same time that brie is learning about the legendborn society and they're like very welsh inspired arthurian magic and attitudes towards demons she's also learning about like this magic that is grounded in like her african-american heritage and community and this idea that like her connection with her ancestors is literally magic 
And there's like not this one just type of like we fight demons with magical weapons type of magic in this world, but actually there's one that's like very grounded in culture and community. I loved Rootcraft. It was something that in a lot of fantasy books, I always find it really boring when people are like, there's only one kind of magic and only one way to do it and there is no other and this is the only thing you can do. I find that just uninteresting and the existence of Rootcraft really proves that idea wrong and I especially like that this revelation about Bree's ancestors kind of like comes this really critical moment in like the climax of the book when like they're fighting a bunch of demons and everything looks really bad and she kind of uses like this power granted to her by like all of her ancestors going back generations to like become this really powerful figure and like she learns that she does have this history and this connection with everyone in her family who's gone before her and it's just a really powerful moment. I especially liked that Brie is not like thrilled to learn that she is actually the sign of Arthur. She's kind of like, Arthur's not the boss of me. Like, I'm not going to do exactly what the Order wants me to do. I can make my own decisions. But she is really interested to learn about this history of Rootcraft and her female ancestors. She has, like, these dual identities as both a descendant of Black women and a descendant of King Arthur. And she has these different attitudes towards them. And, like, there's one that she's much more willing to accept because she feels like it's more important to her identity and who she is and who she wants to be. And there's one that's, like, very powerful but it's also kind of a burden. And I am super interested to see how Tracy Dion will explore these different identities in the sequel because Brie only really learns about this like at the very end of the book, but it's such an interesting idea. One thing I noticed when I was reading those sections, it's actually kind of foreshadowed on the cover because she has sort of these two different types of glowing magic on the cover, which is a very cool cover if I do say so. And one is red and one is blue. And you don't really think much of it other than like, ooh, some cool contrast lighting to make the cover look nice. But then when you're reading the book, you're like, oh, wow, this is actually representative of the fact that she's dealing with these dual legacies and the power they bring with them. And it's probably going to be kind of this theme that goes on throughout the rest of the series. I just really liked the way that it interrogated the idea of having a fantasy system based in European mythology and understandings of magic in America, because urban fantasy is like a genre that very typically will be like, okay, so we have like some fairies and like Maybe we have some Irish mythology or like some European folklore. And I think looking at the ways that real life history and mythology intertwine can often make you go, hmm, it's kind of interesting that like this is very grounded in European folklore. And I like the fact that Patricia, who is Bree's therapist slash like rootcraft mentor, kind of sees the orders as colonizer magic that is being practiced on stolen land. So I thought it was like really cool that Brie ends up being able to harness this magic and the knowledge of her ancestors because so much of this book is about grappling with like the racism and trauma at the heart of America and like this country having been built on slavery and the echoes of that still being present, especially in the South. So it was just very awesome to see Brie claim her family legacy and find power and like understanding and like in knowing their history and magic. But I also just liked the way that this book was like, well, yeah, I mean, if you are writing fantasy in America, you have to have to kind of grapple with the fact that America is like this terrible institution that exists having like destroyed others. So it's like, it's a fantasy book with demon hunting and King Arthur and like some swoony romance, but also it's like a very sharp look at American history. And I just really liked the way that it didn't shy away from looking at the worst parts of like America 
in writing a book about King Arthur. What I liked so much about the reveal of the existence of Broodcraft is that throughout the book up until that point, it's been interrogating the order and like their prejudices against outsiders and like the way that they think there's only one way of doing things. But also up until that point, we haven't seen that there is another way of doing things. Like it seems like the only kind of magic in this world is like to be a scion of one of the members of the round table and then channel their magic and then fight the demons. That's kind of the only thing you can do. But the existence of Rootcraft proves that like, no, there's other ways of doing this and Bree has a choice about how to use her power and like which side of her ancestors she wants to be more involved in. So I just really liked that it's not only like there's more than one type of magic, it's also a way of challenging the order's like super rigid structure about how there's only one right way to do things because there isn't. Like Patricia and Bree's mom have all been part of this like really long-lasting and important community of black women who practice rootcraft so it's really interesting to see like the actual magic system in the book also interrogate the idea of like this western white magic being the only real magic that there is i'm just a really big fan of the way this book is a king arthur story but it also has a black female lead and it uses that lead to interrogate so many ideas about institutions and magic and history and like the correct way to do things and legacy and it was just like such an impressive way of weaving together a magic system and a secret society but also using it to interrogate prejudices and institutions in our real world yes it was just so good like i know we've talked about this for so long but i also still feel vaguely incoherent about how much i liked this book and how it was doing like really interesting groundbreaking things that i haven't seen in urban fantasy books that much, but also how it's just like a really darn good book with like a protagonist that I loved and like really high stakes and some really interesting character development and tension and also like an ending that made me scream and I, I very much need the sequel very soon. <laughs> Yeah, and like we've been talking about all these heavy issues that the book brings up and it does do that, but it doesn't feel like it's doing it in a preachy way. And there are still like tons of fun action sequences where they fight demons where, and like where they have to like train and re-interrogating magic. And it's just like, it's a really enjoyable read, but it also actually delves into like some important and heavy topics. And I think it balances the two really well. Right, like, you know, it's got some very unflinching looks at the horrors of American slavery and the legacy that it has today. But also it has like girls with swords and angsty demon boys and like action and secret society. So it, it very cohesively blends together sort of like cool urban fantasy stuff and like these very complex important themes in like a very well done way that I think will just like continue to be really interesting to see how they unfold throughout the sequels. There's just like so much that I'm very curious to see how Tracy Dion will adapt in future books. Like I want to see how like Guinevere is going to play out in this. Or like there's definitely hints throughout the book that there are other societies of magic users that we're going to see in the sequels. Like there are people who are antagonistic towards the order and have different ways of doing things. And I'm just really curious what's going to go down in the other books because this book ends not very long after the revelation that Brie is the scion of King Arthur. So I'm just super curious to see how this will like change the Order's society and their way of doing things and how this will affect her relationships with Nick and Cell and obviously her family and friends who like have no idea that she's a sign of King Arthur. So there's just so many interesting directions that this book could go in. Like it feels like a big story that has like a climax and like an end and stuff, but it also feels like the story is just getting started. I for one cannot wait to see where Tracy Dion brings it next. 
Yes, that's the best way for the first installment in a series to feel. Like you get a satisfying wrap up, but also there's so much more to come and I'm very excited to see what will happen in the sequel. Thankfully, the second book in this series, which is called Bloodmarked, comes out this summer. So I don't have to wait as long as everyone else who read this book when it immediately came out, which is good because I'm terrible at waiting for sequels. I'm extremely excited for Bloodmarked because the stuff that's being set up at the end of this book promises a really good sequel and also not to be shallow, but the cover of that book is really, really good. It's simply chef's kiss. Tracy Dion sold her soul to the cover demon god to get really nice covers. <laughs> Honestly, she might have. Like the swords, the, the blue and the red, mm, it's all it's all just very good. It's all coming together. Yeah, so I think that this is honestly one of my favorite King Arthur retellings that I have ever read, possibly the favorite. And like, I feel like I cannot wait to see where it goes next and where else. Yes, I mean, I'm not like a King Arthur expert, but I've read a King Arthur retelling here or there in my day. I've seen a King Arthur movie here or there in my day. I've seen an episode of Merlin here or there in my day. But this one was just very good and very fresh and exciting. And the fact that the sequel is not in my hands immediately is kind of physically paining me, but like, I'm strong and I'll get through it. And you still can reread the first book whenever you want to. True. Very true. In the meantime, while we wait for the sequel, remember that if you encounter a secret society of demon hunters, they're probably at least a little bit shady and proceed with caution. And with that, we've been Never the Twins Shall Meet. If you'd like to keep up with our further podcasting misadventures, you can find more info at our website, neverthetwinsshallmeet.com. We're also on Twitter at NeverTwinsCast and Instagram at NeverTheTwinsShallMeet. You can also follow us on Tumblr at NeverTheTwinsShallMeet.tumblr.com.